So imagine this, you're going to do a bike trip through the Sahara Desert. And what you do is you send a friend ahead of you with a truck and a whole bunch of provisions. And that friend is going to pick arbitrary spots every 100 miles or so. He's going to dig a hole, put your provisions in there, and mark the spot on the GPS. Then he's going to meet up with you before you leave. He's going to hand you the breadcrumb trail and say, there you go. Find the caches or die trying. Who would do that? Well, coming up next, there's a whole group of people who did it, and they made a movie about it. I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. This is Renee Cormier, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. If you like the idea of remote adventure travel by motorcycle, particularly through the desert, then this episode's for you. We got a good one coming up for you. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. Well, you've seen the man in the coveralls, jumping off his motorcycle, doing many other crazy things. Austin Vince is well known for his movie, Mondo Enduro, which we covered several episodes ago. Today, we've got Austin here again talking about his latest flick called Mondo Sahara, a 28-day adventure with seven guys into the Sahara, no less. I have speaking with me Austin Vince, who some know as a math teacher and many know as an avid adventure motorcyclist. Austin, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Wow, it's a great treat to be with you through the miracle of the internet. Tell us about the idea that became Mondo Sahara. Oh, well, it was very, it was very, it was very simple. I wanted to do uh, one more film. I was kind of unhappy that the the way that um, the adventure motorcycling scene was going, uh, I thought was in a very unhealthy direction. And it seemed to have just turned into an accessorizing exercise by men. And it was the boys' toys thing, which is, I think is fine. You know, everybody wants to have that jet ski or whatever it is. Um, uh, but nobody seemed to, you know, people seemed to be losing track of what adventure motorcycling really was. So I wanted to, uh, instead of complaining about that, <laughs> or you know, going on a forum and, and ranting, I thought I'll make a film that lays down um, a marker because it, I, wanted, I wanted to make a film that was a manifesto. Um, and I also wanted it to be, in its own way, obviously entertaining and fun. Uh, but also, um, I noticed that my two other big films, Modern Enduro and Terra Circa, um, plenty of people said they liked them. But the uh, but then would turn around and tell me how they didn't think they could do it. They didn't think they could do a trip like that, and it was um, really depressing because that's exactly what those films were all about: ordinary people having a go, and uh, there are humbly succeeding. So I thought, oh crikey, I'm actually uh, this might be the school teacher thing. So I've told everyone twice. So now I've got to tell everyone for a third time. 
<laughs> the same thing. But this time I'll make it more direct. And I used a sledgehammer instead of a delicate um, pair of tweezers. And I and in Montezuma, I wanted to I wanted to set out my stall and lay out you know um, a template and say, come on, everyone, you can do this. And and uh, and not only can you do this, but you really should do this because it's great fun. And then the other brainwave was that my other films had been about trips that had taken 14 months and seven months, respectively. And the most common reason people gave me for not um, uh, having a go themselves was that they didn't have the time. So I became kind of fixated on making a film that was about how much adventure motorcycle fun you could have if you only had 28 days. And that, and that became Mondo Sahara. You mentioned about the direction of where adventure motorcycling was headed and people's attitudes of accessorizing and maybe forgetting or missing the point or losing the point for that matter. What is adventure motorcycling to you? To me, adventure motorcycling is definitely what Chris Scott, who coined the phrase, uh, meant it to be. And he, and he coined the phrase to describe motorcycling to places that were not just remote, but that were where the stakes became very, very high, really, compared to your average motorcycle holiday. And that would be either, in his case, because you were going to the middle of the Sahara, and if something went wrong, nobody would come and find you, and there'd be no one there, or going to places where the people in uniform, the police and the army, aren't, aren't really the good guys. Or going to a place where um, if your, for example, uh, skin was white and you seemed to look European, going to a place where that might in itself be a crime or make people wary of you or suspicious or, or unhappy with you, maybe because of something your government had done to their country in, in your name. <laughs> and um, uh, I think that's adventure motorcycling. Above all else, I think with the whole point of adventure motorcycling having any meaning and not just being completely watered down, it's got to be, I think, it, there's got to be something about what you're doing that makes you actually anxious. And if it, and if it is totally straightforward and easy, then you, you probably aren't actually adventure motorcycling, you're just on holiday. Um, so that's, uh, that's the idea. And then when I said I was worried about where adventure motorcycling was going, it meant that Certainly in North America, there seemed to be a trend whereby just doing long-distance off-road trips was being described as adventure motorcycling, which struck me as a bit weird because people have been doing that kind of dual sport stuff for years, you know, certainly for as long as motorcycles have existed. Camping out and, uh, and you know, getting a fire going and camping and, and dirt biking, you know, and, the, and that's just a holiday because you're in the USA, you know, and... Um, and certainly in this day and age, when you've got mobile phones and stuff like that, um, it seems slightly crass to suggest that that's adventure motorcycling. I mean, that's just good fun, you know. I, that's what I do in Spain. And when I go you know, riding across Spain with my friends, rough camping and, and riding our dual sport bikes along dirt roads, it would never, I would never describe that as adventure motorcycling. That's just pure holiday. It's great fun, obviously. It's fantastic. I love it. But um, uh, adventure motorcycling is, is definitely, definitely where the stakes are properly high and you're anxious and you whatever the thing is that you think is going to go wrong has real ramifications i want to talk about mondo sahara itself can you give us an overview of, of what the the film covers what was the trip start to finish oh, the, the idea was simple and that was to only have a 28 day time frame i wanted to have an anglo-american team because of 
my, I would suppose I'd say my liberal political agenda, which I know in North America will have people shouting at the computer or <laughs> it makes some people upset. But the word liberal in, 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 uh, in, the, in, I think in a British European sense, isn't a dirty word yet. And, um, uh, but I've, I'm a pacifist. I was, which my my pacifism developed very strongly when I was in the military, and uh, and I've become increasingly. I'm very uncomfortable about the way that the British and the American governments have conducted themselves in the Middle East in the last ten years, and I don't think anybody really could could make an argument that that Iraq and Afghanistan are in much better shape than they were ten years ago. And so I wanted to take a group of British and American people to a Muslim country on their motorbikes and to have a motorcycle adventure there or uh, and I wanted um, I wanted them to do it with in open face helmets with a smile on their face my work my working title for the Mondasara when it was in gestation was Americans without guns and um, and one of the American guys said he really wanted to come but could we change that please <laughs> and, uh, and that was that was that was uh, um, a word, you know. That was too. Uh, that was too to the point, sort of thing. But I, it was. It was very important to me that um, that I got across this idea that I think it's incredibly crucial that us motorcyclists realise how special we are. And there's this paradox that you don't want to be going around thinking we're the chosen race or anything like that or oh my god I ride a motorbike I'm amazing I'm better than everyone else but the fact of the matter is is that you just don't meet your average you know station wagon driving hockey mom or, or hockey dad driving across Siberia or halfway across the Congo but if you um, go to unusual places you the foreign person you're going to meet will be on a motorcycle There'll be a motorcyclist. There'll be an adventure motorcyclist, and we're very good at spreading good energy and love, and uh, you know, being ambassadors for our countries. All those kinds of people who've done those trips will always tell you about how um, they've been humbled by the incredible generosity that they've been shown by people uh, in the in the host nation, and that makes them genuinely good people, uh, kind-hearted, very receptive, very open. And that's exactly the kind of English and American person I want to have going across a Muslim country and being the first Englishman or American that, that you know, Muhammad on the police checkpoint or whatever encounters. I think it's really unhealthy that the, that the only Americans and British people that a lot of Iraqi citizens, for example, have encountered have been wearing bulletproof vests and waving a gun in their vest saying, where are your papers? Or I'm suspicious of you. Or, you know, get out of it. Or it's three o'clock in the morning. Get up. You're under arrest, you know, and all, all that stuff. And um, obviously I'm like massively simplifying, but I, I wanted to conduct, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a simple, I'm a simple man. I, I, and I can't affect international foreign policy. I can't get my government to, to change what they've been doing, but they can't stop me going with a load of nice people out to um, a foreign country and making friends. And that's what you did. But setting aside the political view, what was the technical aspects of the trip? Because one of the things that, that intrigues me about the trip, aside from what you just described, is the fact that you're using this, these GPS drop points, which in itself, I mean, that's the real risk, isn't it? I mean, what you're talking about is interaction with people. Um, but the real risk was riding across the desert looking for these spots of buried treasure, so to speak. Yeah, the... Um 
what you might call the nuts and bolts of the Modern Sahara project was to ride off road across Spain and Morocco and Western Sahara out to this country called Mauritania, which is the, the next one down on the Atlantic coast. It's about level with the Canary Islands, if anybody um, has been there or can imagine where that is. And it's the country, uh, it's one of the countries that uh, is just above uh, Senegal and uh, uh, Dakar. So the idea was to ride um, out off-road to, to Mauritania. And while we were riding out, a friend of ours called Richard Kembley, he runs a company called Beast of Burden, who do long-distance extreme motorcycle support sort of thing for extreme expeditions. He'd been out there in the desert in what's called the empty quarter of the Sahara, and he'd been burying food, fuel, and water for us about every 100 miles and marking the locations with a GPS unit. And when we got to the Mauritanian border, so to speak, and entered Mauritania, he met us and was waiting for us. And we did some wizardry with the computers and everything. And he handed over the breadcrumb trail and the GPS plot of, the, of this incredible route that he had pioneered that no one had ever done before and where all of, where all of the caches of the, uh, the buried goodies were. And the idea was that we'd ride all day, get to the, um, the buried stuff each night, uh, dig it up and then and eat and refuel and that would keep us going for the next day. And it worked. It was it was a spectacular success. And it was a template that um, Richard came up with. I can't take any of the credit for that. I was if we just just rewind for a second, I, I wanted to do another trip, but I wasn't quite sure what it was going to be. And I had this kind of political agenda, you know, the liberal, the liberal uh, the <laughs> agenda. Um, but Richard and I had a chance. We, you know, we knew each other. We'd already done a trip out to um, Mauritania and Mali called, Mali called Salt and Gold. We'd done that in 2009. And that, uh, so I'd worked with him before on, on a long distance desert project. And, um, uh, and, he, and he phoned me up. Well, you know, we, we, met, we met by chance at a, a, a trade event and he just outlined this idea. And it was literally a match made in heaven because I said, oh, because I want to do a trip and I've got a kind of crew. I've got this Anglo-American crew, but we're not, I'm not sure what we're going to do. Um, and he said, oh, look, you know, what, I want to do this thing with burying the, burying the food, fuel and water. Let's, you know, let's make it happen. And within about five minutes, he'd talked me into it or less, actually. Once he'd outlined it in a minute and he said how it, how it could work. But crucially, he said um, that at the end of the trip, he could he could take a trailer out to Mauritania and he could trailer our bikes back from Mauritania and we would fly from Mauritania back to London. That, of course, transformed the nature of what we could achieve in the in this notional 28-day window. So that was it. And we, we set a date for about kind of eight months later. And, uh, and sure enough, we left on Thailand Target and it worked. It was a spectacular success. Using GPS drop points is not only high tech, but it's high risk as well. Uh, I mean, all it would take is something to go wrong in, in so many different ways. Things could go wrong with following GPS points, following a breadcrumb trail. And the whole thing comes to a crashing halt and possibly, you know, you're stuck, you're starving, you die. I'm not sure quite how high your risk was. Maybe you can enlighten us on that. But what's the backup plan when you arrive there for your first cache, your second, your third, and you're searching around and you realize something screwed up? What's the backup plan? Well, the, um, the breadcrumb trail that we had, that Richard had set up for us, was about 1,200 miles into the, uh, you know, desert riding. And um, it wasn't, therefore, if you know anything about your geography, it wasn't a full crossing of the Sahara. It was just within, we were only within Mauritania. So we were probably never more than about 300 miles away from um, 
uh, a human being, another another human being. So the idea was that if something went, if if somebody crashed and hurt themselves very badly and couldn't ride, we would have to ride back the way we came and get um, get back to um, this uh, one town that is kind of the last outpost in Mauritania. It's called Atar. And it's and it's a small town with a population of probably of about five thousand people, but it's the last you know, human place um, before it is literally just sand from then on. And if we'd have got back to Atar, we would have been able to uh, track Richard down, and he would have had to come out in the Land Rover and collect the body of the person who couldn't ride. So of course um, that three hundred mile backtrack, but that was that was the. Um, that was the bit that we were worried about. If somebody got hurt, we'd obviously have to split the team up. As we went backwards, we obviously wouldn't be collecting uh, any more food and fuel because we had it all on us. So we would be in a kind of Scott of the Antarctic situation where we'd probably have to pull the fuel from all the bikes and put it onto, let's say, two bikes. So probably there were seven of us, so we'd probably split the team five and two. Five stay with the casualty and, do, and two just try and make it back on their own. Um, this is where, of course, the Monosahara project was a disaster. And if this if this had had to happen, it would have been unbelievably exciting. Uh, if somebody's life had been in jeopardy because they'd had a bad accident and they were in a coma or something like that, and it would have been then a race across the desert, re, re, following the GPS with no prospect whatsoever of those people getting rescued if something happened to them. You know that front that line in um, in uh, uh, oh, what's it called? Top Secret? No, not Top Secret. The 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 Charlie Sheen f- film, the spoof, the spoof Rambo, where they where the bloke says we've got to send some guys in to get the the guys who we sent in to get the guys who we sent in to get the guys. <laughs> that, you know, so that's where that's where it would have been uh, awful. It was it was just a simple navigate, you know, navigation and desert riding exercise where we obviously didn't want anything to go wrong. And the stakes were high in that there was no, you know, the, there was someone to come and get us. There was absolutely no question of any kind of helicopter rescue. There isn't a helicopter <laughs> you know, anywhere out there. Mauritania is like the seventh poorest country in the world. Yeah, there's no, there isn't, there's no mountain rescue or there's no, there's nothing like that, you know. And um, so we were very much on our own if, if it went tits up. Yeah, and, uh, and actually, I think all of us just put our heads in the sand. And tried not to think about that, uh, but we rode, you know, we rode carefully. But well, you know, one guy smashed up his ankle pretty badly. Luckily, he was still able to ride a motorbike after it. But he did the second half of the trip in a lot of pain, and that was it. There was nothing for it. You just had to keep going. You mentioned about um, having this group that um, uh, when you were talking about planning the trip or the the idea for the trip, and you had the group um, ready, sort of to go. These group of people from the film, I didn't get these group of people. And I know darn well you meant to do this. Were any um, group of experts going? It's an eclectic group, really, of riders that you pulled together. I don't think there was any real expertise except for the the person who was doing the GPS. Am I correct? Yeah. Well, it's a. This is a. I've got to watch what I say because, of course, I want the, I want the film, to. I want people obviously to rush out to, to go to Aerostitch right now, please, everyone. Yeah. Stop listening to this. Go to, <laughs> go to the Aerostitch website, and um, and uh, and they'll sell you a lovely NTSC American formatted copy of Monosahara. Um, 
I've just had, I've just had them made, you see, at um, some substantial expense, and had them sent out to the states. Oh. So I'd love, I'd love him to buy one. But um, the uh, the funny thing is, is that all these people are my friends. None of them are what you might call, you know, they, I didn't recruit them through a website or or put an advert in a paper or anything like that or on a forum. They're just, they're just, they're just my normal uh, friends, and and one of them, for example, doesn't even own a motorcycle and has never owned one. But he knows how to ride one. Uh, some of the other, all the others knew how to ride motorbikes, and some of them had done some or quite a lot of dirt biking. Uh, but none of them were had, you know, proper desert experience. Um, apart from like, you know, one of the guys who lived in Portland, Oregon, he he done a bit of riding in Eastern Oregon. That's pretty, pretty arid, you know, that kind of thing. But but none of us had done. You know, uh, day after day after day of non-stop, full, you know, Sahara desert riding. Like you know, on sections that are how should I phrase it? Riding across country in the desert um, when you're not following any kind of trail or route that any human being has ever been along before, or any animal. You're just riding across the sand, blasting towards the little, you know, following the little dot on the GPS that says it's this way. Um, in other words, it's like sailing. Uh, that's almost, I don't, I don't think that's possible much, even in North America nowadays, but, you know, with land access issues. But in Mauritania, you can still do that. And it's unbelievably exciting. Um, but yeah, so the team was uh, a mishmash of ordinary people, but they'd all done some dirt biking. It would be wrong to suggest that they were like just truly members of the public. But none of them are what you might call motorcycle professionals. Uh, they're all, uh, you know, they've all got proper jobs and everything, and they had to get, you know, they had to arrange to get a month off work, and they work in construction, or you know, like me, I'm a teacher. One guy works in IT, another guy does, another guy runs, you know, runs a shop, uh, Zen Overland, that does motorcycle spares. So he, he, you know, he's pretty, pretty handy. But above all else, they, um, I'm now old and wise enough to know that the motorcycle side of it is neither here nor there. It's all about personality. I imagine this is um, what seasoned mountaineers say. Well, I think you've probably got to know a little bit about how to climb and stuff, but you need the, you need the guys who are completely cool, mellow, laid back, friendly. They don't want, you know, and they, and they are above all else, understand it's not their trip, it's our trip. And there's, and there's no time for them to have their own agenda, not even not a minute. And, and you need people who are absolutely happy with 28 days of zero privacy. And that's, and that, that's really how, how, the, how I kind of put the crew together. Choosing those people, though, that's, that's part of the point of it, isn't it? To show that you don't have to be the expert. You don't have to have all these people that have, as you say, you, know, you didn't advertise for them. You didn't go through any sort of criteria or, or narrowing down of who was going to go. You took people who were socially compatible. Yeah, and... Um, in the um, Long Way Down show that Ewan McGregor did, there's a whole bit before they leave where they're doing, you know, all sorts of security training and, uh, and you know, and hostage release drills. And they go, they go off and spend the weekend with one of these, you know, special forces guys who, who, who's got the tattoos and the, you know, the bullet head and the, you know, the buzz cut. And he's like, this is what it's going to be like. It's going to be, you've got to be watched, you know, all this scaremongering rubbish. And um, it was really important to it's really important to me. A lot of people haven't noticed, but, but um, 
a crucial part of the Modern Sahara project and film is that you see us come together only two days before we left. And that's how long it took to put the trip together. Yeah, everybody, everybody owned, you know, had the bike and did their own little bit of luggage and stuff like that. But in two, it, but in two days, we uh, we um, had the you know the concentration, the the build up, just to sort out the group equipment. Who's going to carry the spare chain? You know, not the spare chain. There wasn't one. Who's, who's going to carry the, the 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 cooking gear or whatever? And um, uh, and then we were off. We drove out the gates from where I live in London, and and we and we drove from London down into the Sahara. It was. It was incredibly straightforward. How much uh, prep time went into the whole thing? I mean, obviously, it was the, the get together was only days before, as you just said. But how much uh, prep time in total? All the um, the prep really was done by Richard because he had to make sure he had all the right stuff. He he drove out to um, Africa from England with military rations. Uh, you know, the ones that um, uh, that have got ready ready to eat meals in them and all that stuff. So we didn't have any real food. It was all, well, it is all real food. But um, so Richard had to make sure he had all that stuff before he left. So he had to do a lot of homework on that. Uh, he obviously had to work out on, you know, what he thought the route was. So, um, we, you know, we're not, we, we're, we're not pioneers. We're the first people to have motorcycled this. But Richard is the real hero. He's the guy that's ballsy enough to say, let's try and do something like this. And then he drives off on his own. He's got a mate. Him and his mate drive off, just the two of them, in the Land Rover before we get there. That's, that's far more dangerous. Because if that Land Rover had broken down or fallen over or rolled, well, they, they, there is no way on God's green earth they could walk out of there. No way. So he had a satellite phone. So I don't know what the hell he thought he was going to do with it. I don't know who, who he thought he was going to come, come around. I don't know who, who, you know, he could ring his wife in England and say, we've had a disaster. I'm, you know, we're upside down. We, I don't think we had a satellite phone. Um, pretty sure we didn't, actually. Maybe we did. I can't remember. Um, or if we did, I didn't have it anyway. <laughs> so, uh, I don't, you know, I don't know um, uh, about that. But, um, so, but in other words, yeah, the team was um, a very, you know, very straightforward bunch of guys. The compatibility was far more important. And uh, interestingly enough, um, I rang some American people that I know through the American Adventure Motorcycle scene um, who are well-respected and, and, and in, at some level nationally famous in the American adventure riding scene. And they were the first people that I rang, actually. As soon as I'd ascertained with Richard Kempe this is what the project was going to be, I rang them and said, I want to do this thing. And they said, that sounds amazing. Thanks for asking me. Uh, and then they all ran me back about, you know, two or three day for, days later saying, um, I've, I've checked out the Islamic Republic of Mauritania on the State Department, you know, website, and it's got a big X next to it saying you must not visit this country. You know, Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb are active there. It's, um, it's an absolutely no-go zone for American people. So uh, that happened with three people. These people are sponsored. Um, you know, they're, they're real players. They're all experts. And they all turned me down. They said, yeah. they said it was too dangerous because I thought I was being clever. I've spent, you know, quite the last like five years doing a lot of public speaking in America, attending trade events, attending the Overland Expo. And I was very proud of my little address book of American Adventure Motorcyclists. I was, I was the only English person that knew these people, you know, on, on first, name, first name terms. And I'd hung out with them, stayed with them, stuff like that. And um, it was a bit weird. I kind of like got knocked back. So then I just rang up my buddies, who I just knew through, you know, 
through music and stuff like that and people I've met while hitchhiking in America and I ran out I rang out people I knew who could ride motorbikes and said look could you take a week a month off work and come ride again the summer with me and they all said yes like immediately and they didn't you know that it was it was weird how do you feel about group travel versus solo? You've done these things for your movies with groups. Is that because you're a group advocate or just the way you wanted to do them? Oh, very much so. I wouldn't. Um, I did a big trip to um, India over land when I was 18, back in 1984, across Europe, Yugoslavia, Turkey, um, Iran, and Pakistan, and into India. And then I came back by getting a boat from Karachi to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia and then I got another boat from Jeddah up to, to up to Suez and then went to uh, through North Africa back to England and uh, and I was on my own on that because that was what I thought you were meant to do and I hated it I was homesick uh, and ill and uh, sort of depressed and I wasn't and it was obviously when you're on your own you have to do everything yourself you can't get anyone else to do anything you know and I found that the kind of the admin of just day-to-day survival on your own in all those funny, you know, funny foreign countries, it just took all the fun out of the trip. And when I, there was something nice happening, I didn't have anyone to turn to and say, wow, look at that. And when there was something awful, and in Delhi I got terrible, terribly you know, sick with dysentery and stuff, uh, and I had to just lie on the floor in this railway station on my own and, I, and be really ill. And I was, you know, I'm a frail, weak man. I was desperate to be looked after by someone. <laughs> and, uh, and there was no one there, and it kind of, and I, I didn't think back then I had the presence of mind to say, okay, never again. But in my subconscious, I realized that I, I realized that I wanted to be with other people. I love, I think I'm a social person. I love being with other people when it's good. And when it's bad, you can, sh- you can share the crisis and, and help, you know, cope with it. And of course, then on top of all of that, the obvious things that, you know, if you've got a certain, when you set off these trips, there's a certain amount of clobber you've got to have, isn't there? Like your punch repair kit and your basic tool roll and all that stuff, maybe some cooking gear. Then obviously that stuff, and if you've got camera equipment and you want to make a film, you can just start spreading, spreading the gear over the whole team instead of one person having to, you know, carry everything. It's interesting, Austin, that your your initial answer for the group versus solo thing um, was about having fun about enjoying it because invariably when I ask this question to people and we talk about solo versus group travel everyone turns to safety immediately safety is always the number one concern that's always thing and I understand that's obviously in your thought process as well but the first thing you said was about having fun and and I think that's really that's really important because that's probably the number one thing you're going to experience with a group isn't it I mean you'll have the safety and hopefully you'll never need it but it's about the enjoyment yeah I think um you know, the adventure motorcycling is meant to be challenging. You know, as I said before, if it's too easy, it's not worth doing. Well, it is worth doing, but it's a holiday. Just don't delude, you know, don't delude yourself that you're that you're an adventure rider. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, if it's not enjoyable, why would you be spending all that time doing it? You know, well, that's where you know. Then we get back to that idea of um, uh, you know the whole you know the broader adventure travel thing. Once you get away from, because I curate the Adventure Travel Film Festival with my wife, Lois Price, we get sent a lot of films where the basis of the film is somebody saying, I'm going to try and do something very physically demanding and very difficult in a remote location uh, where I might uh, either die or be killed by by the environment that I'm in. And then I've made a film about it and I succeeded, you know. And, And all these films are all about people 
trying to put give themselves as much misery as possible, uh, and then coming out the other end saying, "Yes, I made it," you know, like the marathon running type thing. And I've got no interest in that. You know, I went, I went through all that when I was when I was in the army, just 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 you know, running until you collapsed and, and getting blisters and getting them infected and 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 just you know carrying logs for God knows how far and just you know somebody maybe maybe having the added pleasure of somebody screaming at you to, <laughs> to help you go, to, you know to to keep you going or whatever or maybe you just screaming at yourself or the team screaming at each other and um, and I met too many people who were very very physically tough with phenomenal physical fitness who were incredibly deeply unpleasant human beings. And I kind of, I grew up as a teenager putting physical fitness on a huge pedestal and thinking it was the ultimate thing. And as I've got older, I put, I put a different, I you know, it's, it's, it's different qualities completely in human beings that impress me now. It's not, not how tough they are, not that Marine Corps, you know, thing at all. So let's just talk for a minute about uh, the technical aspect of sand riding. And I don't want to give anything away on this film because I've seen it. It's really, really good. And I want listeners to go out and buy it. So I don't want to give away the plot or give away the, the great things that happen in it. But let's just talk for a minute about sand riding. Basically, the biggest portion of this trip is all about sand riding. Sand riding is one of the things that many people shudder when you talk about it. And everyone wants to shy away from it. What was it like? Oh, well, uh, the, the thing that is very important to get across is that I'm a very mediocre dirt bike rider with no training or skill. I'm not one of these people who did motocross as a child or something like that. Uh, and uh, the good news is, is that like everything in life, the first half a day is a nightmare sort of thing. And then and you're scared. And then before you know it, you're whizzing along like an expert. You don't even know how the transition occurred. And of course, you do, you know, you know the f- a few tricks, which is like go as fast as you can. <laughs> get some get some decent tires uh and uh and that was it and that you know that was that was all uh, all, all we needed i mean sure we all got stuck every now and then um it really is important to say that the honda xr 400s that we had were just staggeringly perfect i mean i can't imagine a, a more a more utterly deadly attack vehicle for this kind of project you know, they all did. They loved the distance. You know, you could ride them. You know, ride them at fifty-five miles an hour all day. Um, and you know, the ride out. You know, we did. We did like what five thousand miles in in twenty-eight days. And you know, we all we've we've all, we've all got full luggage on, and we're you know screaming the throttles and the clutches in the sand. You know, trying to get through the the soft bits. And uh, and the the XR four hundreds just loved it. You know, we had, I had one problem with my bike. But that was, I think. Uh, it was nothing to do with the fact that it was an XR400. It was something to do with a problem that was there before, you know, when I bought it, actually. But, um, yeah, so the bikes the bikes made us look good. They were such an effective tool. I don't know if you've, if any musicians are listening, they might remember when if you're a kid and you've got a cheap guitar or a crappy violin or a cheap trumpet, the first or a cheap drum, drum, uh, drum set, the first time you play a good quality instrument, you're suddenly better than you were before, and that's exactly right with with motorcycling. I think um, I, I was I was shocked at how easy the desert riding thing was once you you know once you just spent a couple of hours doing it nonstop. 
We had Simon Pavey on a couple episodes ago and asked about sand riding, and he was saying uh, full throttle. And then I, I mentioned about an article I'd read about someone saying that the faster you go, the harder you fall sort of thing. And he said, no, 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 you didn't hear me right. He says, you didn't understand what I said. Full throttle doesn't mean going fast necessarily. It means cracking the throttle open and spinning the tire as you go through sand. Is that basically what you found was the technique that worked? Yeah. When, when you get... I was disappointed to discover... Um, soft sand sections that were you know four miles long <laughs> so uh, so you know the sometimes normally it would just be a washout wouldn't it in a, in a riverbed or something like that so you give it some beans and you'd pop out the other side and, you, and you'd be like phew yeah. that, was, that was good you know and you're like yeah I'm the man and did mm-hmm. that you know um, so it was weird to have uh, um, to have you know sand that was like two foot deep that was just talcum powder and it was it was extre- It was quite stressful and tiring, uh, and it's you know the phenomenal concentration that you've got to give it. So it is. I mean, it's easy in that. The, in that, uh, I know it's easy because I didn't know what I was doing, and I was able to cope. So it, by definition, it couldn't. It can't be difficult. But, you know, not like skiing powder. I've tried to do that loads of times, and I, I just can't. I can't do it. I can't make the turns. You know, I've tried. That didn't get that didn't I didn't get good at that after a couple of hours I could tell you <laughs> so um so yeah but you know give it give it some beans and it and it worked and um and the worst the worst thing that will happen is you'll just be exhausted that's all what's it like to film uh, a trip like this what's it like to to carry your camera equipment and then I imagine you're getting people to do things over again for filming plus you have to get yourself through and carry all the extra gear how do you handle that. Uh, self-filming these kind of trips is, of course, um, uh, you know, double sword. It's a huge chore, uh, and and it's incredibly exciting. If you're a normal person uh, who isn't a TV professional, it's it's great fun to be out in the desert with your mates on dirt bikes, looking at the most amazing stars you've ever seen, having just dug up a bottle of brandy, and you know, and it's the it's the it's the best boozing i've ever done in my life you know in the middle of the islamic republic of, you know, of Mauritania. um so so the filming the filming is is great on this trip what really stood out was that i made clear to all the guys who were coming i want to make a film about this and the film's got to come first so i don't want you know, I preempted an argument in the middle of a hot day with somebody saying, oh, look, put the camera away, Austin. We'd, we just need to get going out of this place. We've been here an hour with the puncture or whatever it was, you know. I wanted to preempt that showdown in, you know, in the hot sun. And everyone was absolutely supportive of me as a, as a director. And when you're a, a normal person, you think, oh, yeah, you know, everyone's going to be fine, aren't they, surely? But it's a, I've done plenty of trips with team members who didn't care for the idea that it was being filmed and thought it was all a waste of time and made it very clear. And there was some, some nasty arguments out in the middle of Siberia or whatever. So that's a crucial thing, is just having everybody on side. Sure, you have to do things a few times. Sometimes, you know, the camera doesn't work or something goes wrong or whatever. But um, it's... Uh, it's so satisfying that the work, it, does, it, you know, it doesn't seem like work. And then when we came back, I mean, the trip took us for 28 days to execute. I was working on the film for seven months. Mm. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, it's one thing to get raw footage, it's another thing to make something out of it. Oh, tell me. 
It's <laughs> another interview. Just because you'd mentioned about group travel there and, and about um, having everyone on board, that's something that's really important when you when you have a group of people, even a group of friends like you did, is to make, um, first of all, put somebody in charge so someone's officially, you know, the decision maker on the trip, and then also really get the point across of how you're going to travel with your group. That is paramount for even for friends to get along on something like this, isn't it? Oh, totally. You've got to know what the group aim is and make really clear. Um, that doesn't have to be... I wasn't in charge of Montessori. I was in charge of the film. And so everybody obeyed me when I said, right, can you go over there and come out of the thing, come out of the door or whatever, you know, something like that. Everyone was completely compliant in that respect. But in every other respect, it was 100% um, a commune, a democratic commune. It was, it was resolutely leaderless. Uh, and we just... Um, we all knew what we were doing. And because we had a fixed length of time and a fit, you know, we, and with all of the stuff with digging up the stuff in the desert, we all knew that that was going to happen. Uh, it was very easy for us to um, all be on the same page. And, and conversely, it was very difficult for somebody to suddenly say, I want to go and do this. Or, oh, I want to stay here for two days. You know, I want to stay here for a week. There's not, you know, that, that there's the whole, the whole structure of the, of the project meant that, that that was very difficult to do, and of course I'd I'd briefed everyone in advance, so nobody, you know, nobody had dreams of of doing their own thing. They were on a group project. Austin, tell us why. I already know why, but you tell us why the listeners need to see Mondo Sahara. Um, I think it's an excellent um, showcase of the DIY low budget travel ethos. Uh, we had a small amount of superb equipment. We had um, fabulous um, stuff from Motion Pro uh, in California. We got some great um, uh, dry bags, camping equipment, uh, punch repair equipment from Touratech. Um, uh, they were, you know, they were very supportive of the project. They also gave us these beautiful aluminium, uh, you know, GPS mounts for the. We only had two G- GPSs between seven of us. Um, but Turotech provided the, you know, exactly the right one that fitted perfectly and all that stuff. So um, I'm not against, you know, gear <laughs> and taking taking stuff. I just think, take, you know, take the take the stuff that you really need and take the very very best version of it that you can. And um, the film is a brilliant showcase of all that stuff. I really wanted to get across the idea that we don't have anything to fear from the average Muslim. Uh, or even probably the non-average Muslim, you know. Um, and of course, you know, people were saying, oh my God, you're mad, you're crazy. There's no way, you, you know, what are you guys doing? Going to the Islamic Republic of Mauritania and driving off into the desert on your own. They'll, you know, they're all waiting for you out there. All the guys with the terrorists, with the turbans and all that stuff and the AK-47s. And of course, we didn't, you know, we weren't lucky. We didn't even get close to having weirdness or un- or unpleasantness. Quite the opposite. Your North American listeners might not want to listen to this, but the cops we met in Mauritania were far, far nicer and more polite and charming and human than the RCMP or most highway patrolmen I've ever had encounters with in in the USA. They were really cool, relaxed, funny, fun. They loved us. They wanted to know where we were from, who, you know, what was our story, where we were going. They loved the bikes and everything. There was no suspicion. There was no macho bullshit like, you know, who are you guys? Don't challenge me. You know, that kind of squaring up on the side of the road thing that you get with cops. So it was the, the whole the whole project 
also was a because it was a spectacular success. We haven't got anyone dying or anything like that, which of course probably would make it a really famous you know travel film if that had happened. But it also really shows people, I think, um, that they, they you know in terms of a motorcycle adventure travel, I think you can probably do anything, whoever you are, if you know how to pull the clutch in, select gear, and let it out without stalling, then you are qualified for world-class motorcycle adventure. We have listeners from around the world. Where can they find this movie? How can they get it? Um, if you're in the North, in North America, you should get it at Aerostitch. Um, it's in their catalogue on their website. Hooray for Aerostitch. And um, if you're in Europe, I would say uh, just go to Amazon. Uh, Amazon UK um, or Dirt Punk. Dirt Punk is a, is a, there's a whole thing, but Dirt Punk uk. the clues in the name it's a groovy kind of like collective of like mind like-minded ex-skateboarders dirt bike riders and general outsiders and misfits the kind of people that i'd like to spend my time with <laughs> and they handle they handle the kind of uh the artwork for the dvd and all that sort of stuff and they and you can buy it through their website so that's dirtpunk.co.uk they'll send you they'll send a dvd to anywhere in the world great well we'll put links in the show notes of course Austin, thank you very much for coming and talking to us about Mondo Sahara. It's a, a huge privilege. Thank you so much for having me along. I'm thrilled to bits. Always a great guest to have on, Austin Vince. Interesting in, in so many ways. Certainly you want to head out and grab the movie Mondo Sahara. And as Austin said, you can get it pretty much anywhere around the world. Check the show notes for the links to his website and to places where you can buy the video. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Jim Martin. Now get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. Hey, before I go, you want to do Adventure Rider Radio a favor? Head over to iTunes and give us a rating on the iTunes website. Or anywhere, for that matter. Anywhere you can find us listed. And if you can't find it listed, let somebody know the show is out there. Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you by Canoe West Media. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.